sisters, let us pray to God. Gracious God, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead us into your holy word and let your word speak to us. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. God's word comes to us this morning in Colossians chapter 3, the first four verses and then skipping to verse 12 on through verse 17. This is a passage in which St. Paul tells us who have been raised with Christ how our lives should go. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And now come some verses about putting to death our lust and greed and slander. Now to verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul teaches us that we have all died and risen with Christ. We did it when he did it because he was the second Adam, the head of our whole second race of believers. We did it again in our baptism when we were identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we do it all through our lives as we put to death our old sinful self and let our new self arise in all of its joy and freedom. So everything in Colossians 3 follows from its first verse, since you have been raised with Christ. And then in verses 15 to 17, Paul says, be thankful, sing with gratitude in your hearts, give thanks to God through Jesus Christ. Three times in a row, Paul urges thanksgiving as a natural feature of our resurrected character. What's the point? Not simply to keep the goods flowing, as if we were caged rats who had discovered the food lever. 
What's the point? Not some unstated contract with God. You know, we like goods. God likes thanks, even Stephen. No. Thanksgiving is an upbeat in the rhythm of healthy Christian life that falls into a category that's easier to illustrate than to explain. Thanksgiving falls into the category of what is fitting for Christian people. In so many ways, God is a giver. How fitting it is that we should, in turn, give something back to God. And what we have to give is hearty thanks that is right and proper and fitting. Gratitude fits people who have been raised with Christ. Gratitude is part of the family uniform of the people of God. But now what I want to ask this morning is whether gratitude is really possible when life gets tough. If we look around the world, we'll see plenty of people enjoying ordinary life, just as so many of us do. But we'll also see all kinds of people with troubled lives. Maybe they're squeezed by poverty or by a threatening government. Maybe they're devastated by drought or famine. Maybe they can't hear the gospel of salvation because they're too depressed to listen. And these are only a few of the troubles that people face every day. And some of them we are familiar with ourselves. So what happens to our gratitude when life hurts? Does it make any sense? Are we just clinging to some fantasy of God's goodness when all around what we see is life's badness? God's providence is supposed to provide for us. But what if it doesn't? This is a problem in the history of faith that is so large that we can't evade it and there is no simple or obvious solution to it. And yet somehow we have to come to terms with it. We have to cope. And I'm going to suggest a strategy this morning that belongs both to the biblical witness and also to more general human wisdom. It has to do with frankly acknowledging obvious trouble but refusing to concede that trouble has the last word. Paul had all kinds of trouble in the churches he founded, but he never let trouble dominate. He knew that even during times of trouble, there is always something to give thanks for. It was true for Paul, and it's true for us. And there's a wonderful Yiddish folktale to tell us that we should be grateful because it could always be worse. This is a story about a poor man whose hut is too small for his big family. This poor man has not only his wife and himself 
and there are six kids living in the tiny home, but also his mother. And it's too much. They're all crammed together, getting in each other's way, squabbling over small matters. The kids cry a lot, especially on winter days when it's too cold to go out, and they have to all stay smushed together inside. And the poor man doesn't know what to do. And so he goes to his rabbi and says, Rabbi, I've had it. Well, the rabbi is old and wise, and he sits with the man's problem for a while, tugging on his beard while he thinks. Finally, he says to the poor man, do you have any animals? Maybe a couple of chickens? Poor man doesn't know exactly what to say, but he says, yes. Yes, I do. I've got two hens and a rooster and a goose. Fine, says the rabbi. Bring them inside the home. So you can imagine the man is surprised at this strange advice, but he does what the rabbi says and pulls his birds indoors, and now things get worse What, with all the clucking and the crowing and bird feathers in the family soup. So the poor man goes back to the rabbi and tells him that now he's got chaos in his hut. The rabbi thinks some more, and then he says, is it possible that you have a goat? Yes, says the man, I'm very poor, but I do have a goat. Bring him inside, says the rabbi. And the man questions the wisdom of adding another animal to the mix, but he does what the rabbi says, and now things get even worse because the goat bleats all the time and butts everybody. So he goes back to his rabbi and he says, I can't take it anymore. The noise and the crowding and the bleeding and the butting are driving us all nuts. And the rabbi is thoughtful as always. Then he, he asks, any chance you have a cow? Maybe old, maybe young, doesn't matter. Well, the man finally objects. He says, no, you can't be serious. Get that cow indoors at once, says the rabbi. And now, of course, life in the hut is impossible. A cow takes up so much space and makes so much noise and produces so many cow pies. It also tramples the children's toys. The poor man goes back to his rabbi one more time and says that life in the hut is now a nightmare. The rabbi thinks for a while and tugs on his beard some more. And then he speaks with a kind voice. Go home, he says. Go home, my good man, and let all the animals out of the hut. So the poor man goes home and he releases all the animals. He does as he's told and he finds that his nightmare is over. Peace descends on his tiny home. No more crowing or bleeding or mooing. No more crowding or butting or trampling. No more cow pies. Now the man and his family sleep soundly, breathe easily, 
and enjoy life in their cozy home. Of course, everything is the same as it was before the rabbi started giving any advice. And yet it's not the same because everybody in the house is now so grateful. They know it could always be worse. The point is that we have an option when it comes to sizing up an unhappy situation. It's unhappy, so we don't like it, but we can choose to focus on whatever might be good inside it. It's a deliberate strategy. We go through life finding something to be thankful for, no matter what. Here's how my minister friend Jeff Chapman once put it. I'm not thankful. He says, I'm not thankful for the mess I have to clean up after Thanksgiving dinner, but I am thankful because the mess means that I have just been surrounded by family and friends. I am not thankful for the taxes I have to pay, but I am thankful that the taxes mean I had an income this year. I am not thankful that the lawn needs mowing, the windows need cleaning, and the gutters need fixing, but I am thankful that these chores mean I have a roof over my head. I am not thankful that the only open spot in a busy parking lot is at the far end, but I am thankful that I have if I am able, I have two strong legs to get me where I need to be. It could always be worse. There is always something inside the situation to dwell upon and give thanks for. I consider the alternative in each case. What if I didn't have family and friends? What if I didn't have a house or an income? A lot of gratitude springs from this simple strategy. We choose to find the good inside a troubled situation by considering the alternative. Some of you may have heard the name Matthew Henry. He was a famous British preacher and Bible commentator in the 17th century in England. A couple of thugs once robbed him on a street in London. He had a remarkable perspective on this event. Listen to what he said afterwards. First, said Henry, let me be thankful because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my purse, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took everything I had, it wasn't much. And fourth, 
because I was the one who was robbed, not the one who did the robbing. Choosing to focus on the good inside a troubled situation, it's a deliberate strategy by Christians who choose to look at life from a particular angle. In 2004, Marilyn Robinson published a now famous novel that won her a Pulitzer Prize. The novel is titled Gilead, and it's the story of an elderly small town minister by the name of John Ames. He's intelligent, he's devout, and for most of his life, he is profoundly lonely. He was born around 1900, so all his ancestors are 19th century people. And he recalls a story about his grandfather. When someone remarked in his grandfather's hearing that he, namely the grandfather, had lost an eye in the Civil War, his grandfather said, I prefer to recall that I kept one. In the novel, Ames tells of his mother and what kind of a strong, resourceful woman she was. One day, she's in her kitchen listening to a storm lashing their house with wind and rain, and suddenly she remembers that her wash is out on the line, the wash she had spent hours doing by hand, and she cries out to her son about what the rain must be doing to her wash. John, she says, those sheets must be so heavy that they're now dragging in the mud. And then this remarkable woman closes one eye and looks at her son and says, there must be a blessing in this somewhere. But is saying there must be a blessing in here somewhere realistic? Is it just a sunny-side-up fiction from a novel? I don't think so. Let's remember our text for the morning. Since you have been raised with Christ, be thankful. Sing with gratitude in your hearts. Whatever you do, whether in thought, in word, or in deed, give thanks to God through Christ. Three times in a row, Paul urges thanksgiving as a natural feature of our resurrected character. And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul adds this to make sure we get the point. In all circumstances, give thanks. It's God's will. In all circumstances, even unhappy ones, and now let's remember who's talking here. The man who urges thanksgiving is St. Paul. St. Paul, who was so full of Jesus Christ that he was always thanking God for people even when he was himself up to his neck in trouble. This is remarkable. In nine of his 13 letters, Paul starts by thanking God for people he is so grateful to have met and to have joined him in his work. He does this even when he has to write his thanks from prison. 
Paul knew danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. Scars from five floggings crisscrossed his back from neck to waist. He had been starved, stoned, shipwrecked, and scorned. Paul had a lifetime of the kind of suffering that if you and I had to endure it for even one day, we would start blubbering for relief. It is this Paul who says, be thankful. Since you have been raised with Christ, give thanks in all circumstances. Sing to God with gratitude in your hearts. It's this Paul who says to the churches, I love you, I pray for you, I thank God for you. Paul has been in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger in the cities, danger in the wilderness, and yet with courage like that of Jesus Christ, Paul pours out thanksgiving for people who labor with him in the yoke of the gospel. I do not cease giving thanks for you. I thank my God every time I remember you. I give thanks to my God always for you. And where did Paul get this grace under pressure? Where did he get this wonderful instinct to greet and give thanks for others even when he was himself locked in jail? He got it from having been raised with Christ. And so in Colossians 3, Paul calls everybody who has been raised with Christ to start giving thanks. Since you have been raised with Christ, be thankful. Gratitude fits people who have been raised with Christ. Gratitude is part of the family uniform of the people of God. Let us pray.